Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged, a podcast by Aurora Energy Research. My name is Alexander Esser, and I'm the head of Nordics and Baltics at Aurora and based here in Stockholm. And today, I'm very glad to welcome today's guest to the show, Dr. Lars-Peter Lindforsch, an executive vice president for innovation at Nesta. Hi, Lars-Peter. Hello, Alexander. Nice to be here today. Great. Yeah, great. Great to have you as a guest. And just very briefly introducing yourself, and then I will leave it actually to you to uh, introduce Nesta as a company and its history. So you have been a member of Nesta's executive committee since 2009. You're responsible for innovation, meaning finding sustainable solutions and business platforms for growth. And you're already doing this since 2007. So you've been part of Nesta's transition from the first day, and you're driving, for example, products like renewable diesel, where Nesta is a global leader. So, Lars-Peter, given that you have been part of this transition already from the very start, could you give the audience some background to Nesta and which transition it underwent? Yes, I can do. Uh, I'm happy to do so, actually. Um, to start with just uh, some information about uh, Neste. So Neste was actually founded by the Finnish state in 1948 after the Second World War to secure energy supply to Finland. Since then, of course, many things have happened on the journey. And at the end of the 1900s, the 1990s, uh, Neste was a local oil refining and marketing company in the Nordic region. At the, at the same time, there, were think, there was a lot of considerations on how to grow the company forward. And at that point in time, it wasn't really clear. To, uh, there was no clear vision on how to grow in the fossil sector anymore. At the same time, uh, we had uh, some of our researchers who had invented a great technology in the mid-90s on how to convert uh, tall oil into valuable hydrocarbons, such as diesels and naphtha and, and so on. At that point in time, it wasn't viable to utilize it in the oil refining as a feedstock because it didn't make financial sense. So the project was stopped, the technology was patented and uh, documented well. A few years later, in the early 2000s, EU started to talk about biodirectives. At that point in time, the management realized that Neste has in its hands a great innovation, a technology that can convert renewable feedstocks into desired renewable products for the fuel sector. So the strategy from there on was really to transform the company uh, in addition to being a refiner, also to bring on board the renewable sector. At the point of 2007, when we started the first small renewable refinery in Porvo in Finland, 
we made some 150 million euros in operating profits. 100% of these profits came from fossil products. About 15 years later, in the 21, uh, 2022, we made from the renewables already 1.5 billion euros. And it was about half of our total profits. So it's a remarkable transition that has happened in, uh, since 2005 until today, as we have been transforming the company to the world-leading company in the renewable space in transportation. So today we are the world leader in advanced renewable diesel and advanced renewable aviation fuels for the world markets. Today we have a global present, presence as the only player in the field. We have now uh, feedstock sourcing, all kinds of renewable waste and residues such as used cooking oil globally. And we are producing in large renewable refineries in Singapore, in Rotterdam. We have a refinery in Porvo, and we have now also a joint venture in the USA. And our markets are also uh, global. So this is a transition that has been really fascinating to be part of. And it's not ending yet, of course. We are on a journey. So from here on, we will continue with new topics as well. This is a short introduction. Oh, that's right. That's a really remarkable transition and a very remarkable journey. And um, you, you mentioned towards the end that you uh, you won't stop there, but you're 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 looking forward to to with with this transition. And I actually looked at your sustainability strategy for for the next years and. The target that uh, for me uh, stood out the most was actually that you're um, aiming for a carbon neutral value chain by 2040. So just to give you a few numbers here for the audience. So you you have emissions uh, uh, from refining. So that's scope one um, and from purchased energy scope two of around 2.5 million tons per year. But the majority of the emissions uh, come actually from your products. So that's scope three. Uh, 35 million tons and here your target to reduce it by by 50 percent so what do you think what are, what are the biggest levers to achieve this very ambitious carbon neutrality uh, target by by 2040 yeah so uh, maybe alexander before going there just uh, another comment on on how this journey continues so of course, as, as you rightly pointed out, sustainability is, of course, at the core of this uh, renewable strategy and transformation that we have. And uh, thus, we are now looking at ways to continue our journey, broadening the feedstock base and broadening the products and the customer segments in the renewable space yeah, and in circular space as well. So at the moment, of course, we are continuously developing the existing so-called HVO path that we have. That is converting uh, glycerides uh, or fats uh, into desired uh, hydrocarbons for aviation and road transportation in particular, but also for as feedstock for uh, bio bioplastics. And 
how we are, how we can do that on top of continuously working on this stream is to find new feedstock sources. And we are at the moment having so-called innovation business platforms in the company where we are looking at uh, several different feedstock pools and converting those into into these products that we so desperately need in, in this uh, um, uh, combating the climate change. So we are looking at lignocellulosic waste and residues from agricultural and forestry industries. We are looking at uh, municipal solid waste. We are looking at algae and we are looking at waste plastics. On top of these, we are also looking at electricity, green electricity or carbon neutral electricity as well to convert all of these feedstocks into desired products. And by doing that, of course, it requires various technologies to convert these very different feedstocks into products. So here we have now a, a great portfolio of development activities, and all of these will contrib contribute to increased sales in the renewable and circular space, which if and when successful, uh, and utilizing our assets also in the traditional refinery will enable us to decarbonize our activities. So it's basically a transformation of our fossil refining into refining renewable and circular feedstocks instead. That is the long-term vision for this. And if I then come back to your question on the biggest levers to achieve a carbon neutral value chain, of course, to start with, we need carbon neutral electricity in all our activities. And that is already existing in Finland. So there we already have, have a, a, a great start. Secondly, of course, we need to look at how are we going to uh, the hydrogen production that we are doing. So we are using, of course, uh, uh, natural gas or other fossil gases to convert through uh, traditional uh, methane steam reforming, the hydrogen we need for our products. And with time, we are going to replace this fossil hydrogen with renewable hydrogen. So basically... Uh, bringing in green electricity, converting it through electrolyzers uh, into hydrogen that then with time, when the, 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 the scale is growing, we would be able then to utilize that for, for green products. On top of that, bringing in more and more green feedstocks, we will also be able to circulate green gases into the uh, reforming, so it also enables us to become, in that sense, uh, less uh, uh, carbon heavy in our production. So these are some of the elements of this uh, moving ourselves towards the carbon neutral value chain. That, that's very, very interesting. And I mean, we're, we're going to come to hydrogen in a bit, but maybe let's first talk about the products that you already have. And so I understand uh, Nesta is a global leader in renewable diesel and in sustainable aviation fuel. And that's mostly based on um, uh, cooking oil um, and animal fat waste as a, as a feedstock. 
And you say now you, you want to extend this, you're looking into additional feedstocks uh, like idea and, and, and solid, solid waste. Um, is the reason for that that simply cooking oil is not scalable, that there's not enough uh, cooking oil uh, to supply the, the European or the global aviation industry? I think, you know, um, if we come back and look at all of the different technologies and feedstocks available worldwide, there is not one single way that is enough. So basically, there are no silver bullets in the, on the globe to combat climate change. Rather, we need to embrace all of the solutions. So if we want to totally uh, replace crude oil, it's not enough to utilize uh, oils and fats, but it's not also enough to use uh, all the lignocellulosics in the world or all the municipal solid waste that is accessible. Rather, we need to develop all of these solutions and try to make them as cost competitive as possible to add on with new uh, molecules uh, to replace the fossil molecules in, in air and on, on the roads and in, in, at sea. Uh, and also electrification as such will not do the trick. So it's very clear if when you look at the huge amount of crude oil used in the world that to replace it or even come close to replacing it on a global scale will require that all solutions are utilized. Yeah, no, fully understood. And I mean, it also comes down that, you know, the application in the different sectors, uh, in the transport sector, industry sector, uh, heating and so on, are so different to each other, right? So, um, but maybe let's stick to, to aviation as, as one example. And aviation is often considered as the, the hardest sector to decarbonize. Um, so... I understand at the moment you are already producing sustainable fuel um, and your um, uh, and ideas is either to also extend the, uh, the, the feedstock uh, for that fuel, uh, but there's also talks about uh, using uh, hydrogen or any derivative of, of hydrogen produced from green electricity or carbon-free electricity for, for, for aviation. So what do you, what do you say, say? What are the challenges and opportunities when you compare both routes uh, for, for this application. So um, a, um, a, 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 uh, yeah, a, a, a fuel-based route versus a hydrogen route. Yes, so if we start from the, the present, so the, the so-called HEFA product, that is the, the product that we produce, the, the HVO-based product uh, based on the oils and fats, that is the most cost-competitive way to produce renewable fuels um, due to the simple fact that the feedstock is liquid and it contains very much hydrogen and carbon in itself. Um, there are then alternatives to make aviation fuel. Uh, we, have, we have a lot of technologies that we know about today uh, and they are based on lignocellulosic feedstocks or municipal solid waste and others. These we also need to take into account. And there are several technologies to convert these feedstocks into jet fuel as well. It is a bit more expensive today than the, the present solution that we offer, but it will also be needed. And then we have, I would see this as a portfolio with some timelines in it. 
power to liquids that we call these electrofuels, if you may, which are based on, on hydrogen, combining it with carbon dioxide into the desired molecules. It is a very cost-consuming process. First, you need to have the electricity in huge amounts. You need to convert it through electrolyzers, which are still, I would say, under development, into hydrogen. Then you need to take carbon dioxide from somewhere that is acceptable from the regulators. In the worst case, it would be air capture, which is fairly expensive. And then you need still to combine the carbon dioxide with the hydrogen into desired hydrocarbons. So this production chain is quite costly, and there are lots of things still to develop in terms of efficiency. Uh, so the difference is basically the price level that we are having today. And this is, of course, the status of today, and it will change. But the point is really that it's not either or. We will need all of these solutions once they develop in order to make sustainable aviation fuels. Mm, yeah, no, I understand. It's, it's more like a really portfolio approach. And you said you, you can actually put it on a timeline. I mean, it, would it be fair to say uh, feedstock-based fuels are something available now, uh, but those power to liquids uh, only in the, in the 2030s or later? I think so, yes. I mean, if we talk about the, the truly the, the millions of tons scale, I think that's the, the right way to put it. Okay, interesting. Now, nevertheless, let's, let's come to one, one hydrogen example that, that you have. So I understand that uh, you're currently building a 120 megawatt electrolyzer to produce hydrogen at your Porvo refinery. And uh, you, uh, Nestle has become the first Finnish company to actually receive the uh, IPCEI uh, status, which is this uh, European uh, status for important projects of common European interest from the European Commission for, for this project. And I understand you're expecting an investment decision by early next year. So this, of course, uh, brings up the, the, the question, uh, how, how do you see this uh, project becoming economically feasible? Is it based on, uh, on a large share of subsidies from the EU, or uh, uh, do you uh, see uh, this also being feasible without any subsidies? Yeah, thanks for this this question. I mean, first of all, I'd like to point out that we haven't yet made a decision on investing, as you pointed out, actually. Rather, we will make that investment decision early next year. But we are seriously investigating the opportunity for this 120 megawatt electrolyzer at our Porvo site in Finland. Uh, and we have gained this IPSE status for this, which is, of course, very nice. And uh, however, the philosophy we have in investments is not that we base them on, the, on this kind of supports. Rather, it has to be a business case that is strong enough. And of course, the funding helps. But what we need to look at here is really that this kind of a concept with the, with the green hydrogen production 
will reduce with time our carbon footprint at the site. At the same time, we believe that through the regulation and incentives, the green hydrogen will increase the value of our products. So in this way, it, it has a double effect. And uh, that's why we believe that there is opportunity to make this uh, financially sound project. You mean that just just a few maybe questions on the applications because of course that's that's usually also uh, when we look at the economics of electrolyzers an important aspect uh, the the offtake uh, who is uh, using um, the the hydrogen and what kind of contracts can be in place there to assure an offtake over over several years is uh, will, will the refinery itself uh, be be the offtaker uh, for example to replace current gray hydrogen. Or will the hydrogen also be be, be sold uh, to uh, to other customers? <clears throat> well, at, at at the first point in time, we see that the best value and the, the imminent use of this hydrogen would be within the refinery. So that would be the first scenario. Then, of course, you can ask yourself: Are there applications uh, in such a scale that hydrogen should be sold out? directly as a molecule for the, as a product. And uh, I think that is still to be seen when that time comes. Mm -hmm. And what's, what kind of applications do you think will, will be the first off takers or what kind of companies will be the first one knocking on your door? Well, it's difficult to say, but most likely it would be in the transport sec transportation sector as a fuel, but uh, honestly, I, I personally don't see that coming very soon. Um, I would rather think that it's better to partly then start to replace the gray hydrogen and, 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 and use it for, for, for converting the, the products to more, more green within the refinery and then getting a higher value for the end products that we sell out. Yeah, makes sense. So this is really the low hanging fruit, replacing gray, gray hydrogen. The the, the current uh, fuel is, is is the simplest and easiest to do. Yeah, understood. Um, so you have a refinery in Porvo, but you also listed uh, your, your global activities in your introduction. So Singapore, uh, Rotterdam, uh, so the Netherlands, uh, but also California. Um, so, um, what what market is 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 the next one for potential hydrogen facilities, um, and why? Well, I think we we are not there yet, uh, Alexander. We need to 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 first uh, thoroughly uh, investigate this one, which makes a lot of sense. This one because we have the 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 fossil refinery in Porvo, so that's where it makes most sense. Then for the other refineries. You know, these geographies are very different and the opportunities also vary quite strongly. So each of these would uh, require a, a separate study. And of course, we are, we are actively following what is happening in these regions and, and, and there will be changes in the hydrogen pool. And the question is, are we going to do something ourselves or are we going to be uh, sourcing that hydrogen, whether it's blue or green or whatever, that is still to be seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, we, we, we of course, I mean, given that we have um, uh, both presence in the US and Europe, we often compare also the, the, the regulatory environment for the energy transition. So, so not just looking at hydrogen, but uh, overall. And, um, uh, and of course, I've seen also the very uh, strong incentives uh, uh, which are planned in the US with the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, how do you see it, given that you have presence both in, in Europe, but also in joint venture in, in, in the US and California? Where do you see it will easier to proceed with the energy transition in the US or in the European Union? I think on a, on a holistic level, I mean, this is a general comment. I, I would say that looking at how the US and the, and the EU is acting, I think US seems to be more pragmatic, more business oriented, whereas in EU we have more of an academic approach. Uh, so I would say that the, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, for instance, seems to be more pragmatic. For instance, giving a certain value for the hydrogen that is produced, if it's green, that makes it possible for businesses to make proper business case calculations. Whereas in the EU, we are more uh, supporting investments and developments, but the market is as such is very unclear what is the status there and how will it develop. So all in all, I, I think on a general, in a, on the general terms that the EU should become a little bit more pragmatic and business oriented to compete with the US in a, in a proper way. I, I like it that you call it academic. I guess that's a very diplomatic word for uh, the very bureaucratic approach uh, with a high administrative burden in, in the U European Union. I mean, could you provide an example on uh, where, where you think the, the EU is a bit too academic? Well, I mean, if 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 you are getting some grants from EU and and uh, you have certain plans based on which you have got this money, and you 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 while developing the project, you get some changes that some scope changes, which are basically not harming the environmental objectives, for instance, but it's just a change. It can be very difficult to retain the the funding because mm. you have changed something in your plan. So kind of, you know, looking at things on a holistic level, I mean, if we are truly interested in reducing carbon dioxide emissions and companies might change their plans a little bit uh, in a way that is not harming that one, uh, then it shouldn't be a problem to continue with the funding, I think. And these kind of rules and regulations are there. There are very many rules on in which you get some funding that how you need to, 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 to report and follow that. So I understand there is reporting needs and requirements, but somehow I feel we are making it very heavy in Europe. Yeah, I understand. And of course, I mean, many of those projects are first of a kind. So mm -hmm. changes to the project setups are probably very common uh, in those first years. Yes. Great. Um, I think we, we, we had a very good discussion on uh, your products, on your transition, um, on uh, the hydrogen um, project that you're pushing forward and also in comparison uh, between the US and the EU. Um, just to wrap up now, I would like to come into a section called overrated or underrated. 
So I don't want to miss out on the opportunity to ask you on a few concepts in the energy transition. And I'll ask you if you think they're overrated or underrated. And don't feel the pressure to elaborate on your responses, uh, but of course you can. Um, so the first concept is green hydrogen to decarbonize the chemical industry. Do you think this is overrated or underrated? I think it's overrated. Um, taking into account the huge challenge we have, I think we should uh, look at carbon neutral hydrogen instead. So I'm saying that if we really want on the global level to have a huge impact of the hydrogen economy, we need to embrace all hydrogen that is produced in a carbon neutral way. So green hydrogen is one thing, but for instance, utilizing nuclear power would also be very important. Mm. Yeah, I understand. I mean, I, 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 get, I get where you're coming from, especially also in the, in the Finnish context uh, where Finland will, uh, will have a quite uh, low carbon intensity on the grid. Uh, but of course, it's a combination of, of wind, hydro and nuclear. Um, so the question is, um, shall, um, shall um, grid-based electrolyzers also be considered as a, as a green or low-carbon uh, low carbon, uh, hydrogen that they output? I mean, I mean, Alexander, by, by definition, uh, nuclear-based electricity is low-carbon electricity. Yeah. So in Finland at the moment, we have 93% fossil-free electricity in the grid. 93% and half of that is renewable electricity so wind and wo and hydropower yeah 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 and um yeah making it making it too strict there uh, could could really hamper the large scale up and the, the required scale up for for hydrogen so so i understand that yeah. maybe second concept so um uh, and now i'm more talk, talking a bit more about applications so your your answer might be the same but second concept is green hydrogen to decarbonize the transport sector. Overrated or underrated? Yeah, I think this is overrated because, uh, as I said, I think, you know, green hydrogen would or requires hydropower or solar power or wind power, as it looks today. That's the major contributors. And out of these, solar and wind are not steady producing electricity sources. And this creates huge challenges for the grid and for the industry that needs steady flow of electricity. So, again, yes, hydrogen from green sources is very important and it's an important part of the equation, but it will not alone make a huge difference. We need, again, all of the different solutions at hand whether it's biofuels or, or, or electrofuels or other solutions to, to together decarbonize the transport sector. Yeah, makes sense. So maybe, maybe you agree on, on the third one. Third concept, renewable diesel to decarbonize the transport sector. Overrated or underrated? I think it's underrated today because if you listen to the media and to the discussions, we hardly talk about the biofuels and renewable diesel. We talk a lot about the things to come, like the hydrogen economy and, and electrofuels. But 
they are not there yet. And electrification will not do the trick itself either. Especially in heavy duty, long haul uh, uh, road transportations, it's very difficult to electrify that because, the, because of the, the limited uh, uh, load capacity for the goods to be transported due to the heavy weights. And of course, we all know that in aviation, it's not even possibly theoretically to, to lift a, a long-haul uh, airplane with batteries because the energy density is so low compared to hydrocarbons. So somehow I feel that the renewable diesel and renewable aviation fuels based on, 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 on biosources is, is under, underrated today. In, as one of the important components to combat climate change already today. Um, and then maybe the last um, concept, and here I'm referring now more to how companies in your, in your sectors are changing. So oil or chemical companies directly investing into renewable electricity generation. Do you think this is overrated or underrated? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's a neutral answer on this one. I mean, it's... Uh... Again, it is important to invest and, and to, to work on the on the uh, decarbonizing the, the electricity grid. Um, and I think it's, it's a good thing that chemical companies are investing into renewable electricity. But then again, whether it's underrated, overrated, I, I cannot really say. It's, uh, it's one part of the equation. Okay. Now we have, we have some examples there, you know, with BSF. Uh, mm -hmm. chemical uh, giant investing yes. into offshore wind. So, of course, also the, the, the oil majors. So, do you have any um, uh, plans to also go into this direction to really uh, integrate also um, um, into, uh, into renewable generation or electricity generation? Well, I mean, in, in, in our, of course, value chains, that is very important. Now, the question is, what will be our role in that value chain in the future? And I cannot really answer that one. Um, Again, it's also a question of where each and every company can make the biggest difference. And I think, uh, you know, with, with limited amount of capital, you need also to prioritize where are you making the best difference. For Neste, most likely the, the best difference we are capable to do is in upgrading different feedstocks, including electricity, into the most valuable Uh, products for transportation and chemicals. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, we, we're coming to an end uh, of, of this podcast, but um, uh, this was really interesting and I'm looking forward to, um, uh, to uh, learn and, and see more of, of the transition that you're pushing forward. And I would like to say thank you for coming onto the show today. Wish you a great day. Thank you, Alexander. Thank you for having me here. That was Dr. Lars Peter Lindforsch, Executive Vice President for Innovation at Nesta, talking to Alexander Esser, Aurora's Head of Nordics and Baltics. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>